the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay In fields where they lay keeping their sheep On a cold winter's night that was so deep Good evening, Merry Christmas, and welcome to a special Christmas edition of Lifeline we're calling An Old-Fashioned Christmas. I'm your host, Craig Roberts. For the next couple of hours, we thought we'd do something very special by turning back the clock and experiencing what radio was like on Christmas's past. Well, so much has changed in our nation in the last few decades with political correctness, the change in direction of the willingness to be open about and bold about one's faith, even the hesitation to wish people Merry Christmas for fear someone might be offended. We thought this time of year it would be important to look back at how things once were, with not just a longing to return, but the goal, prayer, and desire to work in the coming year to change things and set our nation back on the right course and the right direction, glorifying Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and acknowledging the Christian roots of our nation. So as together we experience an old-fashioned Christmas, we'll give a listen to some old radio dramas from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Tonight we start out with a program called The Lullaby of Christmas, produced by the Family Theater and hosted by Roddy McDowell. So many of the audio colors and textures in this next half hour will no doubt bring the light to your heart and joy to your soul as you listen to Roddy McDowell narrating The Lullaby of Christmas from December 19th of 1951. It's our old-fashioned Christmas gift to you on this Christmas edition of Lifeline from KFAX. presents Ruth Hussey, Roddy McDowell, and Lois Butler. You know, one of the wonderful things about Christmas is the pretty web of song and story that has grown up around it without obscuring for any of us, I hope, the truth of the matter. Out of the fact that the real truth of Christmas is so wonderful, so dramatic, so quickening to the heart. And that leads us to Lullaby of Christmas. This story is as old as Christmas, and yet is neither remembered nor told except by the tongueless ones, the water, the wind, the rain, and the snow, by the grasses, the trees, the rocks, and the earth. They have told the story for almost 2,000 Christmases past, 
and they'll still be telling it 2,000 times 2,000 Christmases to come. It will be told by a wind rustling a tree of palm or pine or of maple or mimosa, by water as it crowds against the bank or shore of brook, lake, river and ocean and all the scattered seven seas, by rain tiptoeing across the roofs and skylights of every building north, east, south and west of Greenwich by the singing grasses of southern pampas, bush and savannah, and by the icy twang of sleet and stubble on prairie, heath and plain. It will be told by the sucking swamp mud and the hard-ringing frozen earth and the tumbling rock and the migrant sand. It will be told whether or not men listen or whether or not there are men to listen. For as the storytellers are eternal, so is their story eternal. Their story of the lullaby of Christmas. Whenever someone looked in his direction and bellowed, Hey, you! He came running because he was eager to please. But A.U. wasn't his name. No one knew from whence he came, or when, or how, or why. It was quite possible that he was a forlorn and useless bit of jetsam from one of the caravans that were forever appearing and disappearing like mirages, with camel bells clanging, dogs barking, and drivers howling for right of way through the narrow, crowded roadways of Bethlehem. He might have been eight, or he could have been nine, a childish collection of angles and knobs with an animated pipe stem on each corner for an arm or leg. His clothing was an assortment of tattered rags fastened together with knots, thorns, and bits of cord. And it stayed with him when he ran merely because his greater speed was never quite equal to the greater law of gravity. And he was always running to something from something. His sandals, which had been owned and discarded by three much larger wearers, flapping up and down and right and left, and his bobbing head perching precariously on his scrawny little neck like a fledgling heron on one leg. yet, there was something about the boy that made people notice him. There was something appealing in his dark eyes and something about his cherub's mouth that unlocked the heart. Now and then, someone along the street would stop him and ask his name. But when A.U. tried to answer, from out of his cherub's mouth, instead of words, would come a horrible sound. A scourging, piercing, ear-scraping, howling and shrieking. Yes, A.U. was without the gift of speech. And at night, in the stable of the inn where he made his bed, he would curl up in the fragrant hay and think of all the beautiful magic words that he would like to say. Just suppose. Just suppose that a miracle should take place during the night. Just suppose that he should wake up tomorrow morning and walk over to that stall and say, Good morning, Mr. Cow. Oh, wonderful. And then he'd run outside to the pen and call out, Hello, Mr. Sheep. Oh, magnificent morning. He could talk. He could say anything and everything that he wanted to say. And wouldn't the innkeeper's wife be surprised when she handed out the scraps for his breakfast and loudly and clearly he said, I'm terrible obliged, ma'am. Just terrible obliged. And then, when he was called to do some task or errand, he could tell the innkeeper and his guests that his name wasn't A.U. Why, that wasn't any kind of name at all. It was just an easy and careless way they all had of shouting, Hey, you! Hey, you! My name isn't A.U. Hey, don't you hear me? 
Hey, you! My name's Ezekiel. But the most stupendous, overwhelming thing of all, he would be able to sing. Yes, sing as no one had ever sung before, with every word and note so clear and sweet and perfect that everyone in Bethlehem would stand rock still to listen. He would be able to sing with the other children when they played their games, and would be able to sing right along with the foreign music maker, the one with the lyre and the tame bear who walked the roadways and sang for coins. Oh, a Babylon maiden will hasten the hours with kisses of honey and cinnamon flowers. And at night in the inn, when the roaring fire was juggling fat hot sparks in the black cavern chimney, and the innkeeper and his guests were overflowing with wine and song, he'd never need hide himself in the darkest corner in fear that they would make him join in just so that they could laugh at him. No, he'd be able to stand right by the fire and listen because he'd be able to sing that song much better than anyone in the room. Oh, fill the bowl up to the brim, let memory blend with wine, and drink the glories of the past. And so, each night, before A.U. closed his eyes, he said a prayer for the gift of speech and song, and faithfully promised that if God saw fit to grant these great blessings to a small boy, that he would never use any words that weren't kind and gentle and reverent, and that he would never sing any songs that were not beautiful, joyful, and harmonious. Then he burrowed deep into the hay and fell asleep, warm and content in his belief that on this night, God had heard him. In the morning, when the rising sun reached through the doorway and touched his shoulder to wake him up, he would open his eyes, and then he'd open his mouth, and then very loudly and thankfully he'd say, Oh, thank you, God. Thank you very much. But morning after morning, God disappointed him. And finally, after months of mornings had vanished into Egypt, Au knew that he would always be just as he was, as inarticulate as a tumblebug. <laughs> as a wood tick, as a worm. For a few nights, A.U. cried himself to sleep in black discouragement. And then, then he resolved that he would never open his mouth again to make people laugh. And when his work was done, he trudged out of Bethlehem and wandered over the fields and hills. Travelers sometimes wondered when they saw his lonely little figure against the sky. And none of them knew that he really wasn't lonely at all. Why, he couldn't be lonely among friends. For he discovered that a brook running over its pebbles and stones could chatter and prattle and sing to him. If he answered, or even if he sang, the brook didn't care a ripple that the noises he made were strange and unmusical. It went right along singing as loudly and joyfully as ever. Yes, and the winds were forever whispering, or humming, or caroling. Sometimes they were so filled with music that they shook their great trees and woke them up, and they tossed the great limbs and made every leaf and twig join in with the singing. So A.U. sang too. And the trees didn't care, and the winds didn't care. Neither did the rain when it thrummed on the rocks or strummed through the tall grasses. It went right on just as though his horrible din was the most sublime music it has ever heard. And then, when he was tired, Au would lie on the ground with his ear pressed tight against the moss 
and listen to the small, faraway voices, the little, scarcely audible voices deep in the ever-moving, ever-singing earth itself. The song they sang was very sweet, but so faint and distant that try as he might, he could never learn the melody. And so, listening to his friends, the tongueless ones, A.U. would fall fast asleep. And in the days that followed, he was a little scarecrow stuffed with happiness. A standing on tiptoe happiness that was more prolific than a cottontail rabbit. An invincible, conquering happiness that could summon up more legions than the Roman emperor. It was so far above the miracle he'd asked for in his prayers that A.U. took a long time every night to thank God for his generosity. He thanked him so meticulously and particularly and abundantly that his small fingers developed a cramp and on each round, knobby knee was a round, knobby callus. And then, without the slightest warning, coming with cockcrow as any other day, wearing the same identical colors of dawn as yesterday's beneficent morning, came the dreadful day. It was begun by the innkeeper kicking methodically at the mound of hay where A.U. had buried himself and bawling, Come on, crawl out of there and get to work. On your feet or I'll slice out your tongue and sell it for tallow. Then the dreadful day was helped along by the innkeeper's fat and fuming wife. At mid-morning, when A.U.'s stomach was tied in a double bow knot with hunger, he stuck one eye around the frame of the kitchen door to let it beg for his breakfast. And the innkeeper's wife doused him with slimy dishwater and screamed, Don't come grunting and squealing for scraps at my door when I'm busy, you miserable gutter rubbish! Get out with the rest of the swine! And in the afternoon, as A.U. was racing through the town on one of his endless errands, a tired thong snapped on one of his oversized sandals, and the sandal went skittering through the air, purposely ignoring half a dozen people who would have merely scowled or scolded, and dropped deliberately and maliciously on the proud and helmeted head of a swaggering centurion. <laughs> The centurion plucked A.U. out of the crowd by his rags and lifted him up off the ground and held him dangling at arm's length, demanding his name and his dwelling place. And when A.U. tried to answer, but only made meaningless sounds, the centurion shook him until he flipped and flopped like a limp, grief-stricken starfish. And he bellowed, Look at me, oh, you driveling, babbling, voiceless offshoot of a scurvy, dribble-mouthed alirat. If ever again you foul my eyes, I'll cage you and send you to Rome to feed the Emperor's lions. And through the remaining hours of the dreadful day's afternoon, no matter how fast A.U. ran, the story of his affliction and humiliation always ran faster. It was a street, an alley, or even a doorway ahead of him. He seemed to run through a, a forest of pointing fingers that threatened to pin him to a wall, under a sky of leering eyes that fell and clung to him like leeches, by endless craters of jeering mouths that spouted laughter like bottomless goatskin waterbags. And that night, as each hour slowly yielded to an older one, and the dreadful day neared its end, A.U. was kept late at his tasks in the end. Anyone could believe that half the known world had journeyed to Bethlehem, 
and the inn was so crowded that the ancient floor seemed to sag from the mass weight of weary bone and unwashed flesh. A.U. longed to bury his shame and tears in the nestling warmth of the stable hay. But his tired, trembling legs carried him about with staggering armloads of steaming bowls and slopping mugs. He tripped him up, hands slapped his ears to ringing, and his knees jolted his aching ribs. One who discovered and recognized A.U. was a huge mountain of a man whose eyes rolled like quicksilver in their bead beds of jellied fat. One hairy paw crushed a crumb of stew from his beard, while the other fastened on A.U.'s hair and lifted him, his legs still running desperately in the air, to the tabletop. Then, in a voice that would have silenced him's donkey, he brayed to the listening ears, Look here, my friends. Behold this miserable insect that I've captured for your examination and amusement. Ah, ah, but you must not laugh, my friends. You must gather close with ears agape because this struggling thing has a wondrous golden voice never equal on land or sea or up in heaven. <laughs> oh, yes, I swear it is true. A centurion made a chirp today, and its music was so sweet, it broke my heart and made the angels weep in ecstasy. <laughs> Tell me, would you like to hear it sing? <laughs> Do <laughs> no, you not hear me? Will you sing or shall I slit your tongue like a crow's so you can speak like a human, eh? Sing, I tell you! Sing, sing! And so, standing on the table, A.U. tried to sing. And at every tuneless howl, the crowd shocked its mockery. At every unmelodious screech, it roared its derision. At every discordant squeak, it loosed a thunderbolt of laughter that crashed and splintered on his head. And his mind was fear, and his body was shame, and his blood was tears. But he went on. He went on until the crowd had rung the last outstanding before, the final satisfying chuckle, the ultimate forced snigger from his wretched little body. And when it released him, he ran blindly off through the dark labyrinth of Bethlehem, a terror-stricken shadow racing for the quiet hills and the warm, comforting voices of the tongueless one. But tonight there were no voices. Even though A.U. held his breath, even though he strained his ears, he could hear no sound from the tongueless ones. Even when he threw himself down and laid his ear to the ground, there was no small sound to hear. Even the little voices deep in the earth had stopped their whispering and were quiet. Then A.U. howled and babbled and tried to make the tongueless ones answer him. But they only waited and listened. And he croaked and screamed at them. But still they waited and listened. And he wept and shrieked to them. But they kept silent while they waited and listened. Just listened and waited. Then A.U. rolled over on his back to listen too. And he saw that a great white star had risen and was shining over Bethlehem. A star so bright it blinded him. And so he closed his eyes. And exhausted by the dreadful day, he went to sleep. It was 
close to morning when A.U. returned to the inn. He tiptoed across the frosty stones of the dark courtyard and crept into the stable. For a moment, his fear held him motionless, for the stable was bathed with a bright, glowing radiance that revealed every corner and straw and peg and moat of dust. And it flowed like molten sunlight over a man and a woman and a manger, where a child was cradled. Neither the man nor the woman appeared surprised to see A.U. It was as though they had expected him to come and were waiting for him. So he stole nearer, and he looked down at the child. And the child lifted small hands and smiled at him. Then A.U. felt that he must speak to this child, so he whispered, Hello there. And the words he spoke were as clear and melodious as the water of the brook. Then he said, Hello, child. And the words that came from his lips were as sweet as the winds, as perfect as each raindrop, and as soft as the long flowing grasses. Then Ayu knew why he'd been born never to speak until this moment, and why the tongueless ones of God's world of water and earth and air had all sung to him, and why tonight they had all been still and silent and waiting. Now the waiting was over. Now they were his voice and he was their song. And this was their song to the child of the manger. Close your eyes, precious one, for the world is your cradle. Close your This story is as old as Christmas, and yet it's neither remembered nor told except by the tongueless ones. The water, the wind, the rain, and the snow. The grasses, the trees, the rocks, and the earth. It will be told this Christmas by a wind rustling a tree of palm or pine. By water as it crowds against the bank or shore of brook, lake, river, and ocean, and all the scattered seven seas. By rain as it patters across the roofs and skylights. Yes, and by the singing grasses of the southern pampas, bush, and savannah, and the icy twang of sleeted stubble on prairie, heath, and plain. The few ears that listen may wonder at the strange, childlike quality in the voices of all these storytellers, but that's so very easy to understand. It is the bright, joyful, exultant tone of the boy who sang for them one early morning, one Christmas morning, one glorious morning, in Bethlehem.
thank you, Roddy, for steering us so imaginatively. Christmas time is associated by all of us with first beginnings and with the home. In spirit, we can all return to that little family of Bethlehem, centered at the Christmas crib, the baby Jesus. From Hollywood, Family Theater has brought you transcribed Charles Taswell's Lullaby of Christmas, narrated by Roddy McDowell, with Ruth Hussey as hostess. Our soloist was Lois Butler. Others in our cast were Michael Edwards, Ted DeCorsia, Irene Tedrow, and Bill Johnstone. Music was composed and conducted by Harry Zimmerman. Family Theater's director was Joseph F. Mansfield. This is Tony Lofrano expressing the wish of Family Theater that the blessing of God may be upon you and your home. You're listening to an old-fashioned Christmas, our special Christmas gift to you. Back with more in a moment. Welcome back to an old-fashioned Christmas on this edition of Lifeline. As we continue our look back at old radio dramas and presentations from the golden years of radio, the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, this next program is a very rare and special adaptation of Handel's Messiah from the Theater of Romance, originally broadcast December 24th of 1945. Merry Christmas, ladies and gentlemen. From Hollywood, Edward Arnold in a special Christmas story, The Messiah. Edward Arnold stars as narrator and as George Frederick Handel in our special Christmas legend, The Messiah. Our storyteller for today is the distinguished American actor, Edward Arnold, directed by Lud Gluskin. In 1740, people were saying that George Frederick Handel could no longer write music. His enemies were saying that he never had been able to compose anything of great note. His friends were apologizing that he had been ill and that worry over money had kept him from writing the things that were inside him. He was 55 years old, and yet actually grief and pain had made him much older. He walked uncertainly down the street his shoulders sagging on the Christmas Eve of this most important year of his life. People went by, some spoke, but he did not heed them. He was looking into an abyss that was dark and empty and without ending. The lifetime that had yawned ahead of him, a lifetime without music. And he knew he could not face it. He passed the Church of the Blessed Madonna. He had no intention of pausing, but... Uh... Mr. Handel! Mr. Handel! Did you call me, Father? Yes, Mr. Handel. Won't you come into the church a moment? We have it all decorated for Christmas. You haven't been inside for some time now. No, I I haven't had much interest in religion. Those are strange words from your lips, Mr. Handel. Some of the most beautiful music I've ever heard in our church. You played yourself at the organ. Well, I'll play no more music, Father. I'm finished with music forever. That would be a great loss to the world, were it true. For your music to sometimes seem, well, almost like the voice of God. It was so beautiful, so 
sacred. Please, come in for a moment, Mr. Hatton. No, Father, I have no religion anymore. I... I have no God. Oh, my friend, listen to me. I'm not interested in a sermon, Father. Good night. Oh, uh, Merry Christmas. The good father stood there a moment, looking after Handel, and then he went inside to pray that this lamb that had strayed would find his way back to the flock. There was a little path next to the church, and Handel wandered into it, toward a bench. He was tired, he was heartsick, he was cold, he was lonely. And suddenly, for the first time in his life, he wanted to die. Death seemed to beckon him through the snow, offering release and peace. And then he saw the woman coming toward him, a woman who seemed to move to music, a woman so beautiful that tears stung his eyes when she smiled at him. Good evening, Mr. Handel. I beg your pardon? I said good evening, Mr. Handel. You know my name? Everyone who loves music knows your name, Mr. Handel. May I sit here by you for a moment? It's quite cold. I was just leaving. I'm... I'm not very good company, I'm afraid. I know why you're unhappy, Mr. Handel. I heard you talking to Father Stanley. That's really why I spoke to you. I wanted to tell you that you're wrong about your music. You've written some great music. And I wanted to tell you, too, that you have yet to write your greatest music. Indeed, madam. Well, let me tell you something now. I've written the last note I ever intend to write. You can't stop writing music. You might as well say to the snow, don't fall tonight on London. You might as well say to the winds, pass London by tonight. You might as well say to the stars, shine no more on England. Say to the world, I will write no more music. God has given you a great gift, and you must use it. No, God has forsaken me. God never forsakes anyone. People may forsake God, but they are never forsaken by him. Go into that church and make your peace with God, Mr. Handy. And then go home and bring that music to life that is waiting to be born. All at once, he wanted to get away from the woman. There was something in her eyes that made him ashamed and uncomfortable. A challenge and a fire in them that, that made him feel lacking and inadequate. Once more, his torment took hold of him, a bitterness and an anguish and a frustrated grief closed in about him. And he walked, now fast, now slow. And at last he found himself by the river. And once more, death beckoned. He walked over to the edge of the bridge. He clutched the rail a moment, stepped back to leave. And... That's not the way, Mr. Handel. He stared at her a moment. And then his anger left all bounds. What are you doing here? I followed you. How dare you follow me? What I do is my own concern and no one else's. No, you're wrong. What you do is the concern of all mankind because there are still things you must do. Man lives for a purpose, Mr. Handel, not for his own pleasure. And it is for God to say when he has completed that purpose. One of the few things a man can choose for himself is death if he wants to take matters into his own hands. You have no right to interfere. You're tired and it's late. Why don't you go home and rest? He stood there an instant looking at her, and then he turned without a word and stamped off towards home. When he reached there, his man Charles was waiting at the door. I'm so glad you're home, sir. I was quite worried. Well, I'm going to bed. I, 
I don't want to be disturbed until morning. Very well, sir. Good night, sir. Merry Christmas. Hmm? Oh, oh, yeah. Merry Christmas to you, Charles. He went to his room, shut the door and leaned wearily against it for a moment. His eyes closed. He wanted to cry, but he didn't know how to cry. He walked over to the organ where he had composed much of his music, put the lid down, definitely and finally. Then he sat down at his desk and started a letter to one of his best friends. My dear friend, when you receive this note, I shall be gone from this world and from this life. I feel that I have accomplished all that I can accomplish. And somehow, all the music is gone. There is nothing left inside me. Knowing this, I cannot bear to live. Yes, Charles, come in. You. Good evening, Mr. Handel. We meet again. What are you doing in my house? How did you get here? What do you want? I would like to show you something that I think might mean music to you. Something I believe may mean your salvation. Now, please, this concern over my salvation is becoming something of a nuisance. Will you please go and leave me alone? You will find some beautiful words here, Mr. Handel. I think you could set these words to music beyond any music that has ever been written. I'm not interested in seeing any words or writing any music. You understand that? I think you will be interested when you read these words. This is a sacred story, Mr. Handel. It is called Messiah. Will you look at it? No, I will not look at it. I'll just leave it open here on the desk. I think one day you'll thank me for that, Mr. Handel, on your knees. There it is when you're ready for it. Good night. Left alone, Handel barely glanced at the manuscript lying on his desk. He added a line or two to his letter and then put, the, put things in order and laid down to rest. But he couldn't rest. He tossed from one side to the other, got up and closed the door. He paced the floor. He lay down again, then got up and walked again. He couldn't keep away from that manuscript on the desk. Twice he reached for it and then let his hand fall. Finally, he bent over it and read a line. He was despised, despised and rejected. The line sang itself. He could hear the music each time he said it. Reluctantly, unwillingly, he turned to the opening page and read the opening lines. And the words were music. The music came surging up from his heart and soul. Music that was joy and sorrow, heartbreak, ecstasy, faith and hope and resurrection. Music that was God. And the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. 
And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it unto me according to thy word. Desperately in need of a place to rest. Ah, we have no room. We've asked at almost every house in Bethlehem for shelter. My wife is ill. We must rest somewhere. Well, I'd like to help you, but every room is full. Um, there is a stable in back of the inn. Perhaps you could sleep the night there. Thank you. Thank you. I am most grateful. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn.
And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were so afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God. Glory to God! Glory to God in the came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us go now, even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary, and Joseph, and the babe, lying in the manger. Just listen to Mr. Handel play that organ. I have never heard music like that in my life. I'm worried about Mr. Handel. He's hardly been out of the room for four weeks. Every time I've gone in, he's been playing the organ or writing music on paper. When I've taken him food, he's barely glanced at it. I don't think he even sees me when I go in and out. Stopped. Listen. Mr. Handel, is there something I can do for you, sir? No, no, no. I'm going out. Or is there something I can get you, sir? No, no, no. I'm I'm going out. There's a woman I I've got to find. A woman I want to get down on my knees and thank. A woman, sir? Yes, she brought me this, this, this music, these words. She brought me this work, Messiah. You saw her. You let her in on Christmas Eve. No woman was here on Christmas Eve. She was here, I tell you. She brought me this manuscript. No, sir, I brought you that manuscript. It's the poem Mr. Charles Jennings brought here and left for you. I put it on your desk while you were asleep. You? You brought it to me? Yes, sir. You brought it to me. George Frederick Handel turned and ran from the house. He ran through the streets, holding the music of the Messiah tight against him. He never paused, although it was some distance until he reached the church. He went up the steps and inside the church, slowly, hesitantly, tears rolling down his face. He stumbled down the aisle to the altar, and he laid his Messiah on the altar for payment. And then... George Frederick Handel got down on his knees and gave thanks.
I should like to read you what the poet Heine wrote about a certain book. He said, it is plain, it's a plain old book, modest as nature itself and simple too. A book of unpretending workday appearance, like the sun that warms us or the bread that nourishes us. And the name of this book is simply the Bible. Many of us have read passages from the Bible today. But why not make Bible reading a daily habit? Between the covers of this plain old simple book, you'll find peace of soul and very often the solution of many a disturbing mental problem. Colgate tooth powder and halo shampoo join in thanking Mr. Edward Arnold, who appeared through the courtesy of Metro-Golden-Mayer, the entire cast and the theater of Romance Singers. You're listening to An Old Fashioned Christmas, our special Christmas gift to you. Back with more in a moment. Welcome back to An Old Fashioned Christmas, our special Christmas gift to you on this edition of Lifeline. As our program continues, this next show from the 1950s illustrates the importance of family, especially during the holiday season. Produced by Family Theater, here's A Daddy for Christmas from December 15th of 1948 as the special edition of Lifeline continues here on KFAX. A Daddy for Christmas, starring Pat O'Brien, Linda Johnson, and Bobby Driscoll. Shirley Temple is your hostess. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. When I was a little girl, I once received a doll for Christmas. It wasn't very expensive, nor even the prettiest doll in my collection. But I kept that doll and cherished it long after my other Christmas toys had disappeared. It came from someone I loved, someone who loved me too. No matter how high the gifts are piled, Any Christmas tree is bare which doesn't have love around it. That's why it's so important for us to make our homes places of love. Not just Christmas Day, but every day of the year. And one thing is certain. Love is always present in the home where daily family prayer is a practice. Family prayer will bring love and goodness and understanding. The best Christmas gifts any family can receive. Shirley Temple will speak again following our play, A Daddy for Christmas, starring Pat O'Brien, Bobby Driscoll, and Linda Johnson. Most people look on Christmas as a special occasion. With me... Well, I guess it's what my little Stevie would call extra special. As long as I live, Christmas will be extra special for me now. But in early December last year, when I took Stevie to the toy department of Weber's department store, I had no idea, to quote Stevie again, how extra, extra special that Christmas was going to be. Look, Mommy, look! That glass ball's got real snow in it. And look, there's a reindeer! And there's Santa Claus! 
Mommy, do you think Santa will talk to me? But you just talked to the Santa across the up uh, when he was across the street. I forgot to tell him something. I think you asked for everything in the store. But okay, this is your picnic. As soon as that little girl gets through. Now, Santa Claus. Well, 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 what a nice little boy. Come here and tell Santa what you want for Christmas. You know. Huh? I'm Stephen Hunt. You know what I want. Uh, Santa, you took his list when you were across the street in Wilson's department store? Oh, oh, yes, yes, that's right. I remember you now. I was getting you all mixed up with another nice little boy I know. Mommy calls me a little scamp. Oh, oh, oh but you're a nice little scamp. I'll tell you what, son. I, I left my notebook across the street. So, uh, how about you giving me that list of all the things all over again? First, uh, what's your address? Stephen Hunt, 2228 Elm Street. All right, Stephen. Now, what do you want for Christmas? Well, I want the sled. Mm-hmm. The bicycle. With two wheels? With three wheels. Oh, that's a tricycle. I don't want a tricycle. I want a bicycle. With three wheels? Uh-huh. Mm. One bicycle with three wheels. I got it. And I want a scooter, a pony, a wagon, and I want a daddy. Daddy? His daddy didn't come back from the war. I don't think Stevie remembers him, but... But all his friends have daddies. And I want a daddy, too. <laughs> I'm afraid a daddy is a little out of Santa Claus's line, darling. <clears throat> uh, well, uh, <clears throat> son, let's uh, let's check that address again. Stephen Hunt, twenty. Stephen Hunt, twenty-two twenty-eight Elm Street. It was a lonely Christmas Eve for Stevie and me. Christmas away from my folks and my late husband was just a bit hard to take. But my job as secretary in a lawyer's office didn't allow me time for a trip home. Stevie and I lived in a made-over two-room apartment in one corner of a family dwelling with an entrance off the driveway. Mrs. Ross and my landlady, who took care of Stevie when I was at work, was visiting her daughter's family that evening and over Christmas Day. Stevie and I were alone. Stevie kept rearranging the few wrapped packages at the foot of our little Christmas tree. All right, Stevie, off to bed. I said to bed, not to the window. I'm looking for Santa Claus. Now get to bed. Santa will come after you're asleep. There he is now. There who is? There's Santa Claus. He's coming up the drive with a great big bag. What? Here he comes. Here he comes. Stevie, what on earth? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Santa Claus. Santa Claus. I told Mommy it was you. What'd you bring me? It is Santa Claus. Oh, please, lady. Uh, don't tell me you don't believe in Santa Claus. I, I'll believe anything now. What'd you bring me? What'd you bring me? Well, now, wait. Let me put my bag down first. Oh, what are you doing here? Well, I was just flying by on my reindeer, my sleigh, when I saw what a nice Christmas tree you had and decided to drop in. Well, I couldn't find a chimney on this side of the house, so I decided to use the door. Where's your reindeer? Hmm? Uh, oh, oh, my reindeer. Oh, uh, I sent them back to the North Pole to pick up some more toys. What did you bring me? Well, let's open my bag here. See what we got for Stephen. Well, bicycle with three wheels. Oh, Mommy, look. Santa Claus remembered. Can I ride it? Can I? It's got a bell. It's got a bell. Mommy, Mommy, what's the matter? Nothing, honey. I'm just happy because, because Santa Claus remembered.
He's really asleep now. That uh, Santa suit must be awfully hot. Would you like to take it off? I'll say. Oh, there. Oh, now the beard. Oh, that feels better. <gasps> Why, you, you... What's the matter? You're a young man. Is that bad? No, but... But I just thought Santa Claus was older. I, I mean... You mean you thought Santa Claus was older? Well, I hope you're not disappointed. My, my name's Joe Regan. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Regan. Won't you... Joe. 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 Won't you please sit down? Oh, thanks. <sighs> now, tell me, why did you do this? Not that I don't appreciate oh, it, but... I had to. After all, I'm Santa Claus. And the swell little kid with a pretty and nice-acting mother comes up to me and says... Santa, I want a bicycle with three wheels. Well, what kind of a Santa Claus would I be if I didn't come through? But why, why Stevie? There must have been thousands of boys and girls who asked you for presents. Why Stevie? Well, maybe it's because he asked for something different. He said he wanted a daddy for Christmas. Oh, no. That's going too far, Joe. I, I mean, Mr. Regan. Oh, no, don't get me wrong. I, I'm afraid Stevie won't get his daddy for Christmas. Uh, maybe by Easter? Yeah. You don't think... Oh, no, of course not, but already I, I like you a good deal. Well, I like you too, but <laughs> we sound like a couple of kids. A couple of nice kids, I'll have you know. <laughs> Joe, you're crazy. You're the most audacious, the most... Oh, you're very nice, Joe, but that tricycle must have cost a lot of money. You'll have to return it. I won't take that bicycle with three wheels away from Stevie. You do it. Oh, oh no, I couldn't. He already loves it. He... All right. You win. He keeps the tricycle. One round for Joe Regan. But about that daddy business, uh-uh, that's out. But it wasn't out. Joe kept coming around, sometimes to see me and sometimes to take Stevie, who adored him for an outing. We were married shortly before Easter, and we were lucky. We found a little furnished house in a nice section of the city, and I talked Joe into quitting the job he had in a furniture factory, where he did a lot of manual labor, into taking a sales position with the Jensen Hardware Company. Strangely, Joe balked at this and insisted he preferred working with his hands, but he finally gave in. After all, the, the new job held something of a future. The best part of it all was, for the first time in his war-born life, Stevie began to know what a home was. Strike three, you're out I am not, that was a foul tip You're out, you're out All right, we'll have to ask the umpire Jimmy, wasn't that a foul tip? Uh-uh, you struck out One, two, three, you're out Oh, uh, you kids are ganging up on me It's my bat Stevie, Stevie, Hear that, Stevie? I want a bat first No, no, can't keep Mother waiting Last one of the house is the monkey's uncle. So long, Jimmy. So long. See you in the morning. Hey, you've got a head start. <laughs> I beat, I beat. You're a monkey's uncle. Hello, Mommy. Daddy's a monkey's uncle. <laughs> Hello, darling. My, you're getting harder to pick up every day. Well, how about it? Doesn't the monkey's uncle get a kiss? Ah, better. Sometimes it was like having two little boys around the house, but what mother objects to that? There were other times, however, when Joe was more than a little boy to me, much more. 
Honey, why did you marry me? What? Why did you marry me? What? How can you ask a question like that? Well, I guess... Well, when I used to pester you about it, I used to tell you Stevie needed a father, and that was my main sales talk. Joe, I married you because I love you. I need you. You should know that. Oh, yes, of course. But the way you dote on that kid, well... Joe, I love you so much. I, I guess I did almost from the start. When I was Santa Claus? Oh, no, silly. Well, that's when I fell in love with you. Just as soon as Stevie told me he wanted a daddy and I looked at you, realizing I had a chance. You looked like everything I wanted. And when I got to know you, you were everything I wanted. And Joe was everything I wanted. At least that's what I thought until late one afternoon in August. Hello, Mary. What's the matter? Joe, the lights won't go on. They're on next door, and I checked the fuses. Joe, you didn't forget to pay the bill. But I did forget, honey. I, I didn't have anything to pay it with. I thought they gave you a second notice. But, Joe, we budgeted. Why didn't you have anything? I was fired last Thursday. The boss didn't think that you I... You haven't been working a week and you didn't tell me? I'm sorry, honey. I didn't want to worry you. But you've been leaving the house the same time every morning. I didn't want you to know until I got something new. You seemed to take it for granted I was doing so well. I just didn't want to worry you, that's all. <laughs> no, don't do anything to worry me. Just have the light company turn off our lights without notice. I'll have them on again tomorrow. But how? I said I'd have them on tomorrow and that's enough. Don't speak to me like that. Well, stop putting me through a third degree. Now I suppose you want to know why I got fired. Well, it's because I'm a lousy salesman, that's why. You're the only one who thinks I'm a, I'm a personality kid. Don't worry, Joe. You'll get something better, something with a real future. And about the bill, I've got some money saved. I said I'd pay that bill. You're listening to An Old Fashioned Christmas, our special Christmas gift to you. Back with more in a moment. Welcome back to An Old Fashioned Christmas, our special Christmas gift to you on this edition of Lifeline. As our program continues, this next show from the 1950s illustrates the importance of family, especially during the holiday season. Produced by Family Theater, here's A Daddy for Christmas from December 15th of 1948. As the special edition of Lifeline continues here on KFAX. He paid the bill all right by pawning two pieces of his very fine leather luggage. That was our first quarrel. A couple of weeks later, Joe was in the yard cutting the lawn when Stevie came home from school. Hi, Stevie. High school. It's fun, but, Daddy, all the kids have cowboy boots. Can I have them? Well, well, let's see. Let me think about that a little, Stevie. No. No, we might as well start in being frank about these things right now. Come here, son. Jimmy's got cowboy boots with red and yellow. Stevie, I want you to listen to me. There are times when our family doesn't have much money and we have to get along without some of the things we'd like to have. Some other times we'll have a little extra money and get some of those extra things. Then I can't have those cowboy boots? I'm afraid not, fella. Not right now. Yes, you will, honey. We'll go downtown and get you some cowboy boots Saturday. Mary, I didn't know that... I'm going to get some boots. I'm going to get some boots. I'm going to go tell Jimmy. You shouldn't have told him he'd get those boots just after I said we couldn't afford it. All the other youngsters are wearing them, and I don't want him to know we can't afford it. You've got to learn sometime 
Well, there are things we can't have just for the asking. Well, he's too young to learn now. All right. But how can we pay for them out of my unemployment money? I, I got a little money from my folks this week. They, they sent it to help outfit Stevie for school. Oh, I didn't know. The way his shoulders drooped when he turned for me to walk into the house. I wanted to run after him and cradle his head in my arms like I do my other little boy when he's hurt. But I didn't. Weeks passed and Joe couldn't seem to find a job. At least not the kind I wanted him to have. But Mary, every time I think I can get a job, you say it isn't suitable. What do you want to live like anyway? Joe, it's not me I'm thinking of. I just want to be sure Stevie gets all the things he needs. I see. I'll keep looking for the career job so Stevie can get all the things you think he needs. He tried, but that was all. Finally, I spoke to Mr. Emerson, and he offered me my job back. I thought Joe would raise the roof, but... So you're going back to work, huh? Just until you get something good again. Oh, I guess that's best. No need for Stevie to do without things because I can't provide them. That's all he said. Somehow I'd have felt better if he'd objected. Even insisted I didn't take the job. So I returned to work for the first time since we were married. The third evening after work when I came home, the house was strangely quiet. Joe! Joe! <laughs> Stevie! Stevie, honey, what's the matter? Oh, Daddy, Daddy! What about Daddy? You went away to go his face. Oh, no. No, Stevie. Honey, did, did he leave anything? A, a letter from Mommy? Oh, here it is on the table. Dearest Mary. I know you'll think I'm a quitter and despise me for leaving this way. But it's going to be hard enough saying goodbye to Stevie. And I'm afraid you might change my mind. And we'd all be worse off. I can't stay. Can't marry because I can't be the things you want your husband and Stevie's father to be. I'll never do big things. In fact, I don't especially want to. I don't want to be anything more than just an ordinary guy. Bus driver, a mechanic, something like that. That's the whole story. Goodbye and good luck. And if by some strange chance I do get ahead, I'll try to make up for this. I promise. I love you always. Joe. That's how Joe walked out of our lives, less than ten months after he had entered. At first, I didn't see how I could bear it. But life must go on. And then, of course, there was Stevie. I've written all Joe's relatives, all his friends. They haven't heard from him either. Poor Stevie. He's tried to keep up a brave front. But many times at night, I hear him crying himself to sleep. Sometimes, at first, I cried in bed, too. Then I started telling myself, at least this way, Stevie won't grow up under the influence of a father utterly lacking in ambition. And I got some satisfaction in knowing that when Jimmy Webster got a fur-lined aviator cap, my boy got a fur-lined aviator cap, too. That is, I did until last Saturday, 
when Jimmy came over to our house. You make swell cookies, Mrs. Regan. Thank you, Jimmy. You'll get some as soon as they're finished. When's Mr. Regan coming back? Uh, I, I don't know. Jimmy, does Stevie talk about him much? No. He don't talk about him at all. I wish he was my dad. Jimmy! I guess that's wrong, but Mr. Regan always played with us kids. Showed us how to throw a ball. Right way to hold a bat. Thing like that. My dad hardly even talks to me. I don't think he even likes me. Oh, your daddy loves you. Well, why do you suppose he's always getting you all those nice presents and those swell clothes? If he loves me, why doesn't he act like Mr. Regan? Jimmy, you've got to love your own father. If he doesn't seem to pay enough attention to you, remember, he's a very important man, and he has to keep busy. I wish Mr. Regan was home. He's like the only dad I ever had. It was then I finally realized the terrible thing I had done to my Stevie and to Joe. And I'd had the nerve to nag him for not giving Stevie the things a father should. I'd even held up Jimmy's father as an example. Poor Joe. He must be feeling lonely, too. I suppose he was at apartment store Santa Claus again this year. Somewhere. Wonder what he's doing tonight. Christmas Eve. I could almost scream the way Stevie keeps looking out the window. Stevie, don't you think it's time you went to bed? Just a little longer, Mommy. Maybe Santa Claus will still come. What can I say? Oh, Joe. Joe, if I could only reach you now to tell you I've learned my lesson. I don't care if we're ever rich. What kind of work you do. What counts is you're good for me and Stevie. What counts is you, you and Joe. Joe. Christmas. Do you think Saddle come, Mom? I hope so, Stevie. I hope so. But if he were going to, he'd be here by now. It would be like Joe to come back tonight for Stevie. Maybe if he comes back for Stevie, I can get him to stay for me. Oh, Joe. Mommy, what's the matter? Nothing, honey. Nothing at all. Okay. It's off to bed with you. Are you crying because Santa Claus didn't come? Never mind. It's time. I'll get it. Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas! Darling, I knew you'd come. I knew it. <gasps> it's Daddy! 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 Hello, son. You're back to stay, aren't you, Joe? Yes, I'm back. And Mary, I'm sorry I left the way I did. I was a coward. From now on, I'll try to be the kind of a guy you want. No, dear. From now on, just be yourself. That's the kind of guy I want. Oh, Mary. Oh, enough of this moist stuff. I gotta go about my business. See, you've been a good boy. Perfect. Just like his daddy. Yeah, that's too bad. Well, let's see what we got here. Ooh, a racer with big rubber tires. Thank you, Santa. Daddy? Daddy? What is it, fella? I know where you've been. You do? You've been up at the North Pole making toys. You know, I couldn't have thought of a better explanation. That's the only one I ever want to hear. 
Shirley Temple again. You know, poets often have the gift of expressing our feelings far better than we can ourselves. Here is a poem I think you'll like. It's called, The Flight of Prayer. Who knows what wonders happen when we pray, what forces stir, what golden blessings run toward us on glad feet each time we say, in all sincerity, thy will be done. We cannot follow with our mortal sight the flight of prayer. We cannot hope to chart its secret course. But suddenly a light dawns and the weight is lifted from our heart. For prayer has powers that we know not of to heal and comfort, to provide and bless. All the resources of eternal love move to sustain us in the hour of stress, clothing us safely round with life and power in even the darkest and most urgent hour. Thank you for being with us, and God bless you. Our thanks to Pat O'Brien, Linda Johnson, and Bobby Driscoll for their fine performances, and to Jack Lyman for writing our play. Max Tare scored and conducted the music. This transcribed production was directed by David Young. Tony Lofrano speaking. You're listening to an old-fashioned Christmas, our special Christmas gift to you. Back with more in a moment. Welcome back to an old-fashioned Christmas, our special Christmas gift to you on this edition of Lifeline. As we move into the closing portions of our program tonight, a very special treat. It's the presentation of Stars Over Hollywood with Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, originally broadcast December 25th of 1951. Our special Christmas gift to you on this Christmas Eve edition of Lifeline from KFAX. This is Edmund Gwynn with a welcome to Stars Over Hollywood. Here is your host, Art Bellinger. Welcome to Hollywood, home and workshop of the world's most glamorous people. We're happy to say that each week, Stars Over Hollywood is brought to you by Carnation, the world's favorite brand of evaporated milk. And today we present transcribed A Christmas Carol, starring Edmund Gwen. Yes, it's Carnation bringing you stars over Hollywood. And speaking of stars, here is the distinguished actor of the stage and screen, Academy Award winner Edmund Gwen. Oh, thank you, Art. And I consider it my privilege to be able to further the spirit of Christmas through the work of one of my favorite authors, Charles Dickens. You know, Mr. Gwen, this is going to be quite a switch for you. Mm -hmm. In your portrayal of Santa Claus in the motion picture Miracle of 34th Street, mm -hmm. you symbolized everything that Christmas means. Whereas today, you're... Today, Art, I shall be quite the opposite, I hope, as the dispirit and embittered Scrooge. And that's a performance to which we've certainly been looking forward. And now, Act One of A Christmas Carol, starring Edmund Gwen in the dual role of Charles Dickens and Ebenezer Scrooge. Curtain going up. The scene is old London town on a bleak, cold December evening in the year 1843. Seated behind a table in a drab, cheerless, unheated room is a worried-looking man. He frowns as he scribbles laboriously with a scratchy pen. 
carefully putting words down on the paper spread before him. A Christmas Carol in prose, being a ghost story of Christmas. Mr. Dickens? Mr. Dickens? The thing to do is simply not answer it. Perhaps it'll go away. It's no good pretending you're not there. I saw you come in. Oh, dear. I suppose I may as well mm. face it. So you finally decided to answer me. Good evening, Mrs. Bumbletwist. Won't you come in? It's no good turning your charm with words on me, Mr. Dickens. I've come for me rent, and I means to have me rent, and I'm not leaving this room till I has. I'm terribly sorry, Mrs. Bumbletwist, but I promise you'll have your rent first thing tomorrow. You've said that before. This time, there's no doubt of it. You see, tonight, I'm going to write a story that I hope will turn out to be... Oh, my very best of It seems to me that it ought to begin... Let's see. Yeah. Marley was dead. There's no doubt ever about that. Old Marley was dead as a doornail, and Scrooge knew it. How could it be otherwise? Marley and Scrooge have been partners for... Oh, I don't know how many years. Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, rasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. And once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. He was counting his money and keeping one eye on his clerk, Bob Cratchit, when the door opened and Scrooge's nephew, Fred, came in. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you. Oh, humbug. Uncle. Nephew. You keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. But you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone, then. Much good it has ever done you. Well, there are many things, Uncle, from which I might have derived good, by which I haven't profited, I dare say, and Christmas is one of them. And therefore, Uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good, and I say, God bless it. Hmm? Who's that? That you, Cratchit? Uh, yes, sir. Excuse me, sir. Another sound from you, and you'll keep Christmas by losing your situation. Oh, now, don't be angry, Uncle. Join us for dinner tomorrow. Why? Because it's Christmas, and we'd like you to spend it with us. Christmas throughout. Humbug. <laughs> Scrooge dismissed his nephew curtly and refused the invitation. The door had no sooner closed than Scrooge turned his attention to his clerk, Cratchit. And as the closing hour arrived, he called him into his office. Hmm. Uh, you, you'll want all day off tomorrow, I suppose. If, it, if it's quite convenient, sir. It's not convenient. And it's not fair. Poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. Hmm. Oh, well, I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here all the earlier the next morning, though. Scrooge closed the office and walked to his chambers. Went in. Then he lit a candle and looked everywhere. Sitting room, bedroom, under the table, the sofa and the closet. Yeah. 
Quite satisfied, he closed his door, locked himself in, put on his dressing gown and slippers and sat down before the fire. Suddenly he heard a clanking noise. Deep down below, as if some person were dragging a heavy chain behind him. But the chains came closer, and squinting into the dimly lit shadows, Scrooge beheld an apparition. He... He immediately recognized. Ebenezer! Ebenezer Scrooge! Marley. Jacob Marley's ghost. What do you want with me? Much. Who? Who are you? Ask me who I was. Huh? Who were you then? In life, I was your partner, huh? Jacob Marley. I don't believe it. It's humbug. Humbug, I tell you. Ah. Oh, mercy. Mercy, dreadful apparition. Do you believe in me? I, I do. I do. I, I, I must. But why? Why do spirits walk the earth? Why do you come to me? It is a required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. Uh -huh. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world and witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turn to happiness. Jacob. Oh, good Jacob, speak comfort to me, Jacob. I am here tonight to warn you that you have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. Ah, oh, you were always a good friend to me. Thank you, Jacob. Thank you. You will be haunted by three spirits. I'd rather not, if you don't mind. Without their visits, you cannot hope to shun the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow when the bell tolls one. One? The second on the next night at the same hour. Oh. The third upon the next night when the last stroke of twelve has ceased to vibrate. Oh. Farewell, Ebenezer. With these words, the apparitions walked backward and faded through the door. Scrooge examined it. It was still firmly locked. He tried to say, but the word caught in his throat. So, without undressing, he went straight to bed and fell fast asleep. So the curtain falls on the first act of today's radio presentation of Dickens' Christmas Carol, starring Academy Award winner Edmund Gwen. You're listening to An Old Fashioned Christmas, our special Christmas gift to you. Back with more in a moment. Welcome back to An Old Fashioned Christmas on this edition of Lifeline. As we move into the closing portions of our program tonight, a very special treat. It's the presentation of Stars Over Hollywood with Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, originally broadcast December 25th of 1951. 
our special Christmas gift to you on this Christmas Eve edition of Lifeline from KFAX. Turn now to the second act of A Christmas Carol, starring Edmund Gwen in the dual role of Charles Dickens and Ebenezer Scrooge. When Scrooge awoke, he was aware of a clock in the neighboring church striking the quarter. So he listened for the hour. Finally, it struck. One o'clock. Oh, but that's impossible, Scrooge thought. It had been after two when he went to bed. Could he have slept clear round the clock? Oh, well, as he was speculating on this turn of events, there was a sudden burst of light. The curtains of his bed were drawn aside, and there stood a strange figure like a child. His hair was long and white with age, yet its skin hadn't... Hadn't a wrinkle in it. And somehow, Scrooge knew that this was the first of the spirits of whom Marley had spoken. Are you are you the spirit, sir, whose coming was foretold to me? I am. Well, who are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Hmm? Your past. Oh. Rise and walk with me. words were spoken, Scrooge and the spirit passed through the window and stood upon an open country road. All had vanished, and with it the darkness, for it was now a cold, clear winter day. Is this place familiar to you, Ebenezer? Mm-hmm. I, I was reared in this place. I was born here. Strange to have forgotten it for so many years. Mm-hmm. Let us go on. They walked along the road of Scrooge's childhood, recalling every gate and post, tree and incident. Tarry not here, Ebenezer. There is much to see and the time grows short. Let us pay a visit now to old Fezziwig. Fezziwig? Well, I was apprenticed there. Hold there, Ebenezer, dear boy. Addict, no more work tonight. It's Christmas Eve. Now clear away, me lads. Let's have a lot of room here. We're going to have a party for everyone. Fizzywick was a good man. A fine man. He made us all happy that day. A small matter. Hmm. How can you say that? He was a kind wonderful employer. A generous imp. What is it, Ebenezer? What's uh, the matter? Nothing. No, I, I, I would just like to be able to, to say a word or two to my clerk just now. So. That's enough, I think. Come, our time is up. Oh. I must conduct you home. <laughs> The next moment, Scrooge found himself back in his bed, 
And to his complete surprise, the clock was again striking. There was another flash of brilliant light, and the whole room underwent a transformation. The walls and ceiling were suddenly hung with living green. Heaped upon the floor, to form a kind of throne, were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, great joints of meat, suckling pigs, long weeks of sausages, mince pies, plum puddings, barrels of oysters, red-hot chestnuts, cherry-cheeked apples, juicy oranges, immense cakes, and, oh, seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. Mm. In easy state upon this throne, there sat a jolly giant, roaring with laughter, like old Sir Nicholas himself. <coughs> Come in, Ebenezer, and know me better, man. I am the ghost of Christmas presents. Look upon me. <laughs> You'd never have seen the like of me before, have you? No, no, never. But if you have anything to teach me... You let me profit by it. Good. Touch me, robe. There now, away we go. Scrooge did as he was told and held fast. Soon he and the second spirit stood outside the humble home of Scrooge's clerk, Bob Cratchit. The family was gathered round the table. And although there was very little to eat... Everyone was smiling and laughing <laughs> and seemed to be having a wonderful time. There now, is everyone here? Yes. Are you comfortable, Tiny Tim? Oh, yes, Father, thank you. As comfortable as can be, I suppose. But come, this is a joyous occasion. Let us all raise our glasses and drink a toast. A Merry Christmas to us all. And God bless us, everyone. Spirit, Spirit, tell me, tell me if the little crippled boy, Tiny Tim, will live. I see a vacant seat in the poor chimney corner and a crutch without an owner carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child shall die. No, no kind spirit. Say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. Oh, what can I do? How can I alter the future? It is in your power more than you may think. The clock sounds the hour of twelve. It is time for your next and final journey. The pleasant ghost of Christmas present vanished on a moonbeam, and in its place stood a horrible phantom, draped and hooded. the spirit of Christmas yet to come. But although Scrooge spoke to the phantom, the spirit answered not. No. 
his replies were only eerie sounds in the night. And he pointed into the blackness with a bony finger. You are about to show me shadows of the things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us. I, I fear you more than any specter I have seen. The night is waning fast, and, and it is precious time to me, I know. Lead on. Scrooge followed the directions of the phantom's pointing finger, and a strange scene unfolded before his eyes. He found himself in a graveyard, walled in by houses, overrun by grass and weeds, the growth of vegetation's death, not life, choked up with too much burying. The spirit pointed to a stone and to the name etched upon it. And Scrooge walked forward and read the inscription. E, B, E, N, Eben. No, no, no spirit, hear me. Hear me, I'm not the man I was. I will not be the man I would have been, but for what I have learned, one chance, spirit, one chance, I beg of you, that I may henceforth honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all here. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Oh, one chance. Dear spirit, I beg of you, Scrooge put out his hand toward the draped and hooded figure and felt the bedpost in his room. He was in his bed. The sun was shining. It was morning. He dashed out of bed and ran to the window, throwing it open, and called to a boy in the street. Hi, you. You there? Me, sir? Yes, you. Hi. What day's today? Today, sir? Yeah. Why, it's Christmas Day, sir. Oh. Merry Christmas. Oh. <laughs> Then Scrooge realized that the spirits had all come on the same night. Perhaps he'd dreamed them. Ah, but he didn't care to take a chance, no. No, this was Christmas Day, and there was time to keep his promise. He would honor Christmas in his heart and try to keep it all the year. He dressed in all haste, started on his way. He sang with the carolers, wished everybody Merry Christmas! Happy New Year, gave coins to the poor, bought food for the hungry. He sent a turkey to Bob Cratchit's, which was larger than Tiny Tim himself. Yeah, he bought out stores of everything good to eat and presented himself at his nephew's house to celebrate a Christmas dinner. And Scrooge's good deeds did not stop at the end of Christmas Day. No, no, he gave Bob Cratchit a raise in salary and took the welfare of Tiny Tim into his own hands. Through his efforts, the little crippled boy did not die. No, 
Oh, now he lived to be as well as you and I. He, Scrooge, became as good a friend, as good an employer, as had ever been seen in any city or town in this good old world. Some people laughed to see the alteration in him. But he little heeded then, for he was wise enough to know that nothing ever happened on this globe for good, at which some people didn't have their full of laughter. <laughs> no, it was all was said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed that knowledge. May that be truly said of all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed... God bless us, everyone. And a Merry Christmas to you all. And so the curtain comes down on the final act of Dickens' A Christmas Carol. This week's Stars Over Hollywood show, presented by Carnation Evaporated Milk and starring Edmund Gwen. In just a moment, we'll have news about next week's show. Meantime, how about a curtain call, Mr. Gwen? Oh, thank you, Art. You know, I've played the part of Scrooge many times, but never played in more pleasant Dickensian company than today's. Well, we're very happy to hear that, Mr. Gwen, and for our part... Let me say that you've added another triumphant performance to your already long list of successes. How many motion pictures have you appeared in, incidentally? Oh, about 50 in all lot. Over 20 in Europe and about 30 in America. Not to mention the tremendous number of stage plays to your credit, too. Hmm. Mr. Gwen, I have no doubt the warming influence of Tiny Tim has taken all the chill out of Scrooge's nature. But just in case... Let me offer you this cup of hot coffee, which I believe you'll enjoy all the more for the fact that it's creamed with carnation. Oh, thank you very much. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, Edmund Gwen, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Our broadcast of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol was adapted by Ralph Rose. Supporting Mr. Gwen were Betty Harford, Ben Wright, Alec Harford, Eric Snowden, Jay Novello, Raymond Lawrence, Charlie Lung, Tudor Owen, and Diane Abbott. Special music was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. The program was transcribed and directed by Hans Conried. Stars Over Hollywood comes to you from our Hollywood studios and is heard in Canada over the Dominion Network of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. There is Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, originally broadcast December 22nd of 1951. Our special Christmas gift to you on this Christmas edition of Lifeline. Well, I'm afraid with that program, that's all we have for tonight on this edition of Lifeline. Coming up tomorrow, it's our Christmas Day special. Two full hours of Christmas music to get you in the spirit and keep you there as you celebrate the real reason for the season with you and yours. On behalf of all of us here at KFAX, the staff and management, my producer Wanda Sanchez, my engineer Rick Strauss, and all the folks that help make this program possible, let me wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Till next time, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get on out there and share it. And have a great Christmas.
General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.